Well, thank you, choir. Hallelujah. We say that. We can all say hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for what we've experienced already today. And we pray now that you would uh, help us as we turn our attention to your word for a few moments and just continue to realize through this message how great is our God, how merciful is our God, how, Lord, gracious you are. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us and free us more fully in our walk with you through the truth from your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, being prepared for um, what you're doing or attempting to do makes all the difference in how you view it, how secure you feel, how free you feel to move forward in the task. Especially is this true in activities like mountain climbing. I was told this morning that I didn't have a body for mountain climbing by one of the encouragers in the church. But nevertheless, <laughs> so I used to have. Anyway. When a, when a climber has a, a good rope and hooks and harnesses, and I think you call them uh, carabiners, the little oblong-shaped things that you put your ropes through and kind of help you with what you're doing, well, that person can freely roam with joy over the deepest caverns and gorges or go up the side of the highest mountain. And he or she can rest in the fact that they are held securely by all of that apparatus that they put together to help them accomplish that task. Well, last week in our series, True Lines, we began to unpack another core matter of our faith, perhaps the key matter, and that is the subject and matter of grace. And so far in, um, in this series, today we come to our 14th message. If you're visiting with us or watching online, we're looking at our faith from the ground up and what the Bible has to say. I'm going to be very transparent talking about how I process my own faith. We're looking at understanding what we believe, how we apply that to every area of life. And so that's um, where we're at today. So far, we've looked at the authority of Scripture, how Scripture's been preserved, had three or four messages on that. We have looked at the matter of evil, of why did God create everything if He knew evil would come. We've looked at the fall of humanity, our own fallenness, our own sinfulness in three messages dealing with how stained and broken we are. And week before last, we turned to the matter of grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. If you've not been following these messages, they're all available online, all the scriptures there, the PowerPoints are there. But again, we're trying to understand what we believe from the ground up. You're not going to survive well in this culture if you don't know what you believe. Stand upon that rather than what you're feeling, rather than what's coming at you every day, stretching you in a lot of different ways. You've got to have your feet on the foundation of the Word of God. And as Jesus said, the person who builds their house upon the rock, upon the truth, their lives will hold up in the midst of, of all the storms that come toward us. So the title of the message this week is He Giveth More Grace, and we pick up from last week in which we looked at what grace is, to whom is it available, and how we experience grace. And today we began to look at the glory of grace and thinking about what God has done for us, and in the weeks ahead we'll begin to understand what God is doing in us and through us and 
our responsibility in light of grace, but today we're looking at our great God. We've been singing about the greatness of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God, and we need to understand His greatness in relationship to His grace toward us. So if you have your Bibles, I'll be in the book of Genesis today, starting there, chapter 12, and we'll be looking at the call of Abram, who then became Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, we'll just read verses 1 through 4, where the Bible says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household of the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And then in chapter 15, we have... Um, 18 verses here, and I'm going to kind of scroll through them, but here is where God enters into a covenant with Abram. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He goes on to talk about that he is uh, the God who brought him out of the Chaldeans, and Abram says, well, how can I know I'm going to possess this? How do I know this is going to come true? So beginning in verse 9, God says, so the Lord said to him, Make, bring a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with the dove and a young pigeon. And so he brings them out. God says, cut them in half, put them in rows opposite each other. So Abram does that. And the text says is that the sun was setting, verse 12, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, <clears throat> know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. And so God is making this covenant with him. Skip down to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces, that is the pieces of the animals. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, and he lists several ones there just for time's sake. I'll let you get through uh, those and uh, maybe name your children after some of those names that are there. So, Abram, later Abraham, is known to us as the father of our faith. That is, he is the first one at the headwaters of those that uh, placed his trust in God. He responded to God's call. And he is the one through whom a promise was made and fulfilled that would flow out into all of the world. And that promise is ultimately of a descendant, not just the nation of Israel, but to one descendant in that nation who would be the Messiah. And through him, the whole world would be blessed. 
And so Paul picks up on this idea in the book of Galatians. If you would turn over to your New Testament in chapter 3 and verses 15 and 16. Paul says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. So the promise was that through this one person, God would bless the world. And we see, if you go back in uh, the same chapter to verses 6 through 9, that uh, Abram was justified by faith in God's Word, looking forward to the Messiah. So chapter 3, verse 6, so also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what we read in Genesis 15. And understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that's you and me, by faith, and announced what the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So the gospel is the good news about Jesus. And all the nations are going to be blessed through the Messiah that would come, that descendant of Abraham. So as we think about Abraham, from him and his experience with God, we can learn so much in an analogous way about how God works with each of us who are believers. We can begin to see how gracious God has been to us and how secure we are in Him as a result. And that's really what we're going to kind of drill down upon today. And so, as we're working our way through what we believe, at times I'm bringing up our Baptist faith and message statements, our little summary of faith, the little booklets are available in the front and rear vestibule. I encourage you to pick those up. It's a summary of what we believe and what we teach. And so that's kind of foundational to what we're doing in this series And so today, as we're thinking about Abram and God's call upon his life and what God does here, there's another one of our statements that gets at the true lines that we have and hold to as believers in our tradition. It's Article 5, God's Purpose of Grace. So if you throw it up there for me, uh, guys. God's Purpose of Grace, Article 5. We don't often take time to read these in a service, but I want you to read through this one with me if you would. And uh, if you can see it can't uh, listen. So election, it's not talking about November elections. This is another word for this is uh, predestination. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means and connection with the end. It is a glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. All true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace. We're talking about grace, aren't we? But shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal or earthly judgments on themselves. You can put yourself under God's discipline. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And we don't have time to unpack this whole statement today. But it's an awesome truth that's being expressed here. And we can understand this truth by looking at 
Abram and his experience with God. And I just have two, two lanes we're going to go down today to talk about this. And um, it's enough to chew on just to give you two things today. So first of all, we can say as we think about our statement, the scripture we have read, and Abraham's life, that we can say that in grace, our God loved and called us first. If we're uh, Christians, if we're believers, if you're a believer, if you've already trusted Christ, if you're a Christian, one beautiful truth about grace is that before you ever loved God, before you were ever born on this planet, God had set his heart on you, and in time, he called you. He had a plan for your life. And so in our text today, here we have this man, Abram. He'd been living in a particular place. He was not a person who worshiped the one true God. He was probably a polytheist. And he's there minding his own business. Uh, Somebody said once about Noah that uh, he's sitting there eating his meatball and God speaks to him and he chokes on it. So here's Abram minding his business. And all of a sudden, God speaks to him. He's living in a particular place, and the one true and living God says to him, get up, follow me to this land. I'm going to give it to you. And he established a relationship with him. And he gave him the assurance of a Savior, our Savior, and he brought him into the family of God. God initiated this. Abram would never have initiated this. God called him. That is how it begins, that he initiates these things. And so we're talking first today as we think about this, about what God does. And the theme of God's election, as our statement says, his plan to call his people to himself before they ever come to be, is raised in other passages in the Bible. And so you have passages like Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, where God says to Jeremiah the prophet, he says, before I ever formed you in the womb, before I formed you, before you were ever born, God said, I called you and set you apart to be a prophet. So God called Jeremiah before he was ever born to be his servant, to be a prophet for him. And then this idea of his initiation, his work, it becomes clearer in the New Testament. So if you would just follow me through a, pa- a few passages in the New Testament. Let's turn to John chapter 1, verse 12. Because I want, I want you to see these are not my idea. I didn't make this up. It's, it's, it's right here in the Bible. John 1, 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But listen to verse 13. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. It is his power that works in us to bring us to life. He initiates the call. In John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, we hear the Lord Jesus say this, All those, John 6, 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me. That is when he calls them. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. 
For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Skip over to John chapter 2, and I'm just reading selective passages here today, but I hope you're following along. In John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe. Why do they not believe? Because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then one other passage, some of the central passages related to this, is in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And Paul writes and says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. Y'all know that part of the verse, right? We, we quote that one a lot. Keep reading. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. It, it means you didn't pick up your cell phone and call Him. He called you. Who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined. Foreknowledge is not a foreknowledge of a decision you will make. It is foreknowledge of, as God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. That's another word for election. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I want you to notice all of those words there in Romans chapter 8 in our English translations, they're in the past tense. The idea is that God is so in charge of this process that He can already speak as though I am glorified. That this life is over, Christ has come, I'm in my eternal state. And because this is so sure, because He is so powerful and so sovereign and so good, and that when He called me to salvation, He will finish everything about it, even to the point that he can say that we are already glorified. And that is what is being communicated in the words in our statement that we read, that he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. And finally, as we read in our statement, it says, it, election, is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness. He is sovereign and is infinitely wise, holy, and the last word says it is unchangeable, unchangeable. And so this is all centrally about what he does. It's not so much focused upon our response today, but upon what God has done for us in, in our lives if we're Christians. You know, I don't think any story in human experience can adequately illustrate what we're talking about here. God planned on making Abraham. God set his heart on Abraham. God called. Abraham responded God saved. And so God was in charge of all of this. 
You know, in some small way, I, I think about it in terms of the voice of my mother, where Jesus is talking about my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I think about the voice of my mother, Frances Jewel Cox, little frail woman, weighed barely 100 pounds most of her life. But when I was a kid, I often played just over the hill from my house. My house sat here on Corbin Street, and there was a little hill where Aaron and Anthony Pate lived, and on over the hill was where some other guys lived. And so I was often over the hill playing in the large field next to the Stinson's house. And that's where we played football and all kinds of stuff over there, rode our bikes. And I can remember that when it came time for supper, moms would begin to call their children over the hills to come home. A lot of mothers, a lot of kids out there playing. And you know, I didn't notice those other moms' voices when they were calling their children. But there was one voice that I recognized. And I knew I needed to recognize that voice and honor that voice. And I knew I needed to respond to that voice. And that was the voice of my mother calling me to come home for supper. And she called me my name because I was her son. And I recognized that voice to which I should respond. And I knew that she had a great meal waiting for me when I got home. Might have been fried squirrel or something. But anyway, it was great food. And I was hungry. I'd been outside playing hard sometimes all day. And so I went home and I found this wonderful meal waiting on me. And it was a great joy and a great place to be. And here I still remember it down to now. Well, God is saying that in these verses we have read, that just like Abram, he is the one who initiates the call. He made us. He knows us. He calls his children, his family that are called according to his purpose, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. But then the second thing I want you to see today, just two big things, is that secondly, in grace, he pledges to keep us. Now we notice from Abraham the truth that in grace, God, when he calls us and we're his children, he keeps us. Notice again our statement says that God's purpose of grace is unchangeable. And God puts everything on the line to secure that for us and to make it clear to us. And so here in this story in the Old Testament, if you go back to that passage in Genesis chapter 15, in this passage we see that God gives them the promise here of the seed of the Savior and that they're going to inherit this land as a nation as well. And Abram says, well, how can I know this is going to take place? And so God tells him to take some animals and kill them, split them, some of them, not all of them, not the birds, but some of the animals, and split them in two, in half, and lay them in rows opposite of each other. So he's making a a row to go between, right? And there's animal parts on each side. And there are not a lot of parallels in the ancient world to compare what is going on here, but the text indicates that God is doing this to make a covenant. He's making a covenant between himself and, and Abram. Now, covenant is usually something where there are pledges between the two parties. There are blessings and there are curses. So Abram takes the animals, he cuts them in half, he shoes the birds away that are trying to steal some of the stuff. 
And then uh, what does the Bible say happens to Abram in the text? What does it say? It says in verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, he's asleep. God's speaking to him in a vision, it would seem. And it doesn't seem he wakes up through any of this situation that takes place. And so Abram's asleep God speaking to him in this vision. And then God acts here in the text where it says in verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. Who is it? That's God. Think about the, uh, the cloud to Israel, right? And think about the fire that led Israel later on. And so we see this smoking fire pot with a blazing torch. It appeared and passed between the pieces. Abram doesn't pass between the pieces. But God is the one who passes between the pieces here. And so God ratifies the covenant. Abram's asleep. It seems that God here is taking the responsibility upon himself to keep his word to Abraham. It is a gift to Abraham. And God is telling him the outcome is sure. And as some scholars put it, if there were curses that occurred for not keeping the covenant, it would seem that God is saying, I'll take the curses upon myself to secure what I'm going to do for you. You know, in the New Testament, we have some physical symbols to remind us as well of the covenant God has made with us. Jesus said, this cup is the new what? Covenant in my what? Blood. There was blood in this covenant, wasn't there? And he left us this symbol of the Lord's Supper. Physical symbols we can touch of his body and of his blood that we ingest. That reminds us that he has passed through again to save us. The promise of the Savior came. And he went to the cross and he, he bore our sin. He became a curse for us. Bearing our sin, past, present, and future. And so this is the sign of a covenant written in his blood. And he says, I will give you forgiveness and righteousness as a gift. Christ's righteous life becomes counted as my life and my record. And so when we are saved in the New Testament, for time's sake, I'll just put the scriptures on the screen, not look them up, but you remember in Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14, it talks about the fact that when we become believers, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a down payment of what is to come. A guarantee of everything God says I'm going to give to you, here's the guarantee. It's in my blood and a covenant, and I've given you my spirit to be with you and to be in you. And he says, I will seal you by the spirit or mark you by the spirit as belonging to me. And that's a promise that God is saying to me, what I started in your life, I will finish it. And that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you, I didn't begin this work, he who began a good work in you will carry it forth to the day of completion. He will finish it, what he has started in my life. And so in God's grace, I am secure. Nothing in this life can ultimately defeat me. Nothing in this life will ever separate me from his love. 
Nothing will ever cause him to stop his work in me until it is complete. He will turn even my defeats into ultimate victories. Even my sin and my failures will not stop God's purposes. And remember, our statement said that believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit. We grieve God's Spirit and His power flowing in our lives. We impair their graces and comforts. We hinder that fellowship with God. We can bring reproach, shame on the name of Jesus through our sin. And we can also bring ourselves under the judgments of God, God's discipline. As writer of Hebrews, one person interpreted that, that um, God will come riding over the hill and break both your legs. But the statement says, yet they shall be kept by the power of who? God, through faith unto salvation. This does not mean that I should ever desire or seek to sin. We should want to be sinless. And we'll come to that in a future message. And I would say that somebody who can just sin without concern or repentance may in the end prove to not have been one of God's genuinely called and saved children. But for the central thing that we're seeking to understand today, God sets his heart upon us in eternity when he chooses to create us. He calls us out in time as he did when I was 14 years old out of our sin and condemnation. He adopts us into his family and what another beautiful picture that we may come back and pursue of adoption. He gives us a new heart. He indwells us by his spirit. He will never let us go and nothing he says can ever pluck us out of his hand. That's truth you can use, isn't it? You know, I'm the father of five kids. Well, they're all grown now. One is in heaven from a miscarriage. But I remember when our first child was born, and the time came to take her home from a hospital in Decatur, Alabama. And I remember how my world had changed. I mean, I knew my wife was pregnant. You know, I could see that. And we were waiting for her to come. But I mean, it's just like when, when it happens, man. And I remember getting the car seat fixed in my little Dodge Colt, facing the back, right? And I remember when we strapped her tiny body in it. And I remember holding her and being nervous as a first-time dad because I was afraid I was going to break her because she seemed so fragile to me. Her mom and I would be willing to lay down our lives for her. Give everything we could for her, to, for her best. And we're thankful for how our children are flourishing. And yet, as time goes by, you realize that you are limited in what you can do, ultimately. To provide for, to protect. You realize you cannot determine ultimate outcomes. Because you're a human being. And you're going to get old and you're going to die and you have limitations in your ability to help shape the full outcome of their lives. They ultimately have to make those decisions before God themselves. But I want you to know that my daughter and my, all four of my children, we have a greater father and so do you and your children who is not limited. He cannot lie. 
There is no one stronger or better. He knows the end from the beginning. He has chosen me, created me, saved me through the new birth, and he can guarantee the outcome for me in a way I cannot for my children because of who he is. We're we're right to be praising his name today and worshiping him and singing hallelujah to him today. Now he has me on an incredible journey toward home. My destination is sure. My being perfected and glorified is a safe reality. And that's why I ask Andrew to read 1 Peter chapter 1 as our call to worship today. I'm not going to read all of it again in verses 3 through 9. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what we should be doing. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I love this verse. And into an inheritance, listen, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, that is uh, so true and so freeing for me as a believer. That every day I get up, I know he has acted and is acting for my eternal good. And I can get up each day living in light of his purpose of grace. I'm secure. I'm free. I'm kept. That frees me to confess my sins to him. My outcome is clear. And with that type of identity, we're then prepared to live and, and hear the rest of the story about grace and what it means in the days ahead. Maybe you're here this morning or you're watching online and you've not trusted in Christ as your Savior. Well, everything I'm sharing with you, as we said last week, it is available to you. Our statement says that God has done everything to save us, and it says it's consistent with free agency. That is with the choice you have to make. He calls, and you have the capability to respond, and you have a real choice to make as God shows you your need. And he has shown you, if you've ever heard the gospel preached, he's already shown you your need that you've heard about Jesus, you've heard you need salvation. So Abraham believed and he trusted and he was declared righteous. He's the key for understanding how this becomes ours. How do I know I'm one of the elect? I know because I've repented and called upon Christ to be my Savior. And maybe today you need to call upon Jesus to hear his voice, to be your Savior and your Lord. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. The writer of Hebrews says, so as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Maybe God's calling you today as he did Abraham. Mount, now is your moment to trust in Christ. As we sing in just a moment, I encourage you to call upon Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord. Then let somebody know about that. If you're a Christian for whom some of this truth is new today, I hope you'll explore it more fully because it will really set you free when you understand it and embrace it and walk by it.